Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And with me is Mr. Clifton Miles. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Uh, Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. It's an honor. Well, it's an honor for me as well. So Clifton is a longtime Nell the Mix URM subscriber and a studio owner, producer, mix engineer at Dead Room Recording Studios in San Antonio, Texas. And reason that he's here other than because he's a badass engineer is because he's got a particularly inspiring story that we're going to get into. But uh, before we get to that, why don't you tell me real quickly what got you into playing guitar initially and how that translated into you wanting to record? Um, Well, I have been... Uh, you know, a fan of music and growing up, you know, with parents that were, you know, into music and listening to music all the time. And so um, just playing guitar was something that it it just kind of happened for me. I, I don't know. I just wanted to do it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there was a, if there's another answer to, to that question than that. I just was wanted to be able to recreate, you know, the songs I was hearing on the radio and, you know, around that time, you know, to me it was kind of like a, a golden age for, for metal, you know, um, with Pantera and, you know, bands like that, that you're hearing on the radio before the internet was really a thing. I wanted to play guitar. And so, uh, my parents, you know, got me a guitar and I started jamming and, um, you know, eventually that led to me getting a, uh, one of those like little Tascam, uh, Porta studio cassette deck things. Uh, I used to have one of those. <laughs> the the big blue brick looking thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got one of those and, um, um, real quick, the, the, the quest became getting that cassette information into a computer. Um, I, I used to run like, um, um, like that phono, um, RCA cable into like an eighth inch, um, input into my computer sound card. <laughs> and I would like try what to, was it like a sound blaster or something? Yeah. Something like that. Like some kind of like, um, uh, real primitive, like doll yeah, that I didn't know how to use properly. And, um, I would always try to do that and they're like in the, into like w- windows, um, audio recorder or something like that. I just thought it was cool to be able to like um, get that information. So was this, this was the late nineties then? Uh, or early two thousands, late nineties. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. The, right around that time period. I mean, uh, I know I was, I was listening to like um, uh, hate breed perseverance um, and, and um, you know, Slipknot's first record, um, you know, like 99, 2000 in that time frame. Um, that was, that was what was happening for me, but, um, I didn't actually start playing in a band until, you know, closer to the end of my high school time, which is like around Oh three, um, Oh four. And, um, uh, once I started playing in bands, you know, I, I, I started, you know, we started needing to record and, um, you know, there was a couple guys in town, you know, that, that were kind of the go-to guys. One was like a home studio guy and one was, uh, like a, a commercial studio guy. Both were cool guys. It's just like, you know, depending on your budget, which vibe you wanted, you'd, you'd go to one or the other. And, um, I just found myself really captivated with that experience and wanting to be there as much as possible, even if it wasn't my band. 
um, I was just always there. <laughs> so my face kind of became like, you know, a regular, um, you know, staple in the studio, um, just with friends, bands. Which one of those two studios did you find yourself more drawn to the home studio or the pro studio? Um, I got along better with the home studio guy, um, just because he was, it was more or less something, I guess, that my brain connected with a little better, but I, I did like the atmosphere of the commercial studio. It just, it felt really expensive to me. Like it, it felt like I was, you know, like a destination almost. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I did, I did find myself more connected to the home studio guy. Okay. And, uh, You've had a fairly lucrative career outside of audio. What made you want to stay in the audio world? Well, um, that's a that's a fantastic question. Sometimes, you know, I I, I ask myself that. Um, I, I I was blessed to have you know a, a father as a salesman, and you know I I got to be kind of immersed in his you know terminologies and the way that he just the the people skills I guess is uh, for lack of better words and so when I when I began selling I, I came from the auto industry and I was a you know career you know car salesperson and um, did really well with that but it, it wasn't fulfilling to me and um, in 2008 when the recession hit um, I wasn't making nearly as much income as I was previously making and so um, you know. I had been hobby recording on the weekends. You weren't, you weren't making as much money from the car industry. Correct. Yeah. So, okay. so for me, it's like, if I'm not going to make as much money as I was making, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I decided in that moment that what I wanted to do was my recording. And so, um, I, I, I'm real competitive. And so I don't like stopping and I just don't like stopping doing something I said I was going to do until, you know, I feel like I've accomplished what I need to accomplish. And, you know, 10, almost 10 years later, I'm still, <laughs> I still haven't had that, you know, I still haven't felt like I've accomplished what I am here to accomplish. You know, I'm still learning every day. I'm still, you know, trying to get better. I'm still trying to, you know, increase revenue for the studio. Um, so it, it's, it's been a really fun challenge and I don't see it I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm a lifer at this point. <laughs> but so you're making your full living off of the studio now. Yes. That's awesome. And how long have you been 100% uh, all audio? Well, um, in 2008 is when I decided I was going to be all audio and it didn't quite pan out initially. Um, you know, I blew through what I had saved up pretty quick and um, I needed... Just out of curiosity, do you mind sharing how much you had saved up? Oh wow, yeah, it's embarrassing, but yes, um, I had put away. It's okay, <laughs> I was, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was pretty. Looking back, it was extremely reckless. Um, I had to put away maybe, maybe twenty five hundred dollars, which covered me. Holy shit! Yeah, which covered me probably two months, a, a month and a half, and so it was like I, I have one month to basically start making this happen, and it was extremely reckless, and I would not recommend anyone doing it that way, but you know. I, I've always had like kind of a like a burn you know burn the ships mentality with my my studio business and so I I didn't give myself an opportunity to really fail and so I I took part time jobs I drove pizzas and things like that to to make sure I could stay afloat until this thing actually took off and that was around 2010 where it it got to be where I didn't need the part time job anymore to to pay my bills. Yeah, but there was a tragic incident that occurred in your life that took you away from recording or almost took you away from recording. Could you talk to us about that? 
Yes. Um, so in uh, 2007, uh, summer of 2007, while I was still um, selling cars, um, I was recording part time just on Sundays on my my only day off. And you know, when I say recording, I mean it was like you know hobby demo stuff in my mom's bedroom at my parents' house. And but but you wanted to make it full time at that point, right? Um, I had not I had not decided that yet. Um, I, I hadn't made that decision. It was just something I was enjoying doing. And, you know, I was, I was doing really well with my car job at that point. Um, you know, the decision to go full time with the audio did, was really kind of a repercussion of the recession. Um, you know, because of how little I was started making from, from, from the car business. But, um, in, in 2007, in that summer, I, I woke up and I had a loud uh, ringing in my right ear. And um, it was it was very similar to that um, experience you have like the following day when you wake up after a loud, you know, concert or a show. And, um, you know, you kind of have that stuffy kind of tinnitus and it kind of just rings. Um, it was really similar to that, except there was something, you know, drastically different about it that, you know, it actually kind of hurt a little bit whenever like I, I had a, a car kind of honk its horn near me on the way to work that day. And um, I noticed that was kind of when I was aware that it was different. And, um, so you were just like hypersensitive. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, um, sounds actually were causing pain in, in my, in my right ear. Um, and I, I didn't know why I actually went to the bathroom and like wadded up a piece of toilet paper to put in my ear. Cause I didn't have any like earplugs because I, I couldn't handle it. It was just, it was too annoying. Um, and, uh, I ended up leaving work that day and, uh, going to a, uh, like an emergency clinic and, um, they ran some, some tests and ended up sending me to an ENT, um, the following day. And, um, they, you know, he kind of looked at me and said, you know, this is kind of bad news, you know, <laughs> either, either way, you know, this is, it's, you either have a virus um, he told me he ran the same similar test to what the emergency clinic did and said, you either have a virus, um, which at this point, if you're feeling pain from it is, is causing, you know, significant damage to your hearing, which, you know, you may not hear the same ever again from that ear. Um, or there's a 2% chance that you have a benign, uh, brain tumor and, uh, so shitty or more shitty. Right. Yeah. There wasn't a, there wasn't a light at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> so what, what did you do that day when you found that out? Um, well, I went for an MRI, um, that day. He said, I want you to go right now, um, and get an MRI. And he called and made that happen for me. And, um, the creepy thing or the, 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 the shitty thing, we're allowed to say shitty, right? <laughs> the shitty thing yeah, about, you just say uh, whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. The shittiest part about this was that he said, um, this was a, um, this was a, uh, Thursday or a Friday um, afternoon. I can't remember exactly, but I do remember he said, Monday, I want to see you first thing in the morning uh, before I left. Well, that day I went, um, it was a Thursday. Yeah. Cause um, the fall, I went that evening and um, I got the MRI and I knew something was wrong because I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, they kind of put this visor on your face that has a mirror, yes. a, a mirror on it. So you don't feel claustrophobic. So in the, in the, in they never gave me the visor. <laughs> they <just> stuck <laughs> they me just in there. Stuck you in there. Yeah. They, these people, they gave me a Xanax though. <laughs> I'm sure. That, I'm sure that probably helped. Uh, yeah. But the thing is they gave me the Xanax and then put me in there five minutes later. So it didn't kick in until I was out of there. It was, and then afterwards I just want to go to sleep. It was totally pointless. 
and fucking stupid. <laughs> that's, that's awful. Oh yeah, yeah I, I I hear some people can't can't handle the MRI uh, machine as well as others. Uh, it's but, uncomfortable as hell. Oh, you know, it's extremely. It's like a, it feels like you're in like some kind of like space odyssey, like 2001 or something. It's like it's like making all these Star Wars sounds and stuff. Um, it's it's intense. But uh, I had this this visor on. Um, and um, I could see in the in the mirror um, through this visor um, the the uh, techs that were kind of doing this MRI pointing at the computer screen um, during the MRI. And I when I was looking at that and, and and I could see one motion for the others to come look at the screen, I knew that there was I, I knew in that moment, like I, I just absolutely knew it's like there's no reason why. These texts. You were you weren't supposed to see that though, right? I don't think so. No, but they did give me a freaking visor with a mirror on it, so I had a very clear view of everything that was going on <laughs> in their office when that was happening. Um, to their knowledge or not, I don't know. Um, but that was that was when I. Knew. I don't. I don't think you were supposed to see that. Yeah. Like <laughs> I don't I, know. I think they're supposed to talk to you with their game face on, not like. Not show you the holy shit. That reminds me of when I got swine flu and almost died. Holy shit. Um, it was before swine flu testing was, uh, was I guess, accurate. And so they didn't know what I had in the hospital. And they were trying to keep their game face on. But one of my best friend's father worked with the head doctor that was uh, treating me just by chance. And he told me that the doctor was like telling him that uh, in the doctor's words, we don't know what the fuck is wrong with him. But obviously they didn't uh, say it like that to me. Jesus. Yeah. That, so that was. They're, they're not supposed to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And no, when I, when they came out, um, I asked the guy point blank. I said, did you guys see something? Cause I saw, you know, I kind of saw something going on and he kind of looked a little rattled and he said, Hey, your doctor is going to go over everything with you. And, and that's kind of like the, that's like what you're saying. That's the game face answer, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. we're not allowed to say anything, but man, that swine flu thing was right around the time that I was still trying to make ends meet. Cause I was delivery driving when everyone had sanitizer bottles everywhere. And, you know, that was, it was like an outbreak. That was what, 2009? Nine. Yeah. 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 I remember that. Wow. I didn't know that happened to you. Oh yeah. It definitely happened. And uh, that's why. It's funny when I see people or saw people who said it was a conspiracy. It's like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Conspiracy my fucking ass. I saw that too. Yeah. I, 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 I'd never met anyone personally or spoken to anyone personally that actually had that. So that's, I, I did hear that conspiracy. I'm, I don't really buy into those kinds of things usually, but, uh, some, well, some of them I do. <laughs> that's another podcast, right? Um, but yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. It was definitely real. Um, all right. So go on. So you, at that point you're scared. I, I'm, or I'm, yeah, worried or I'm, I'm, something. Yeah, it's a combination of of disappointment, you know, and and anxiety. Um, you know, I, I I wouldn't say I was really scared because the guy did a pretty good job of um, prepping me for the 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 situation. You know, I knew I knew I was going to be kind of screwed and and pretty much when i when i saw those people pointing at that screen and i kind of knew in my you know my intuition what what was going to be told to me i've kind of started mentally preparing and um it was confirmed because 
uh, Friday morning, the, the day after, I got a call from the NT and he said, hey, can you come by my office this afternoon? And I said, oh, weren't we supposed to meet on Monday? And he goes, I'd rather see you this afternoon. And so I said, oh, dun, dun, dun. yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I know there's no, if there was a slight question, there's no question now. So um, I showed up and he said, you know, I, I took my dad with me and he said, um, you know, there's no easy way, you know, for me to really say this, but uh, unfortunately you fall into that 2% that I told you about um, and you have a benign tumor. And um, he told me pretty straightforward. He's like, this is, you know, it's benign. There's no cancer. He's like, these are, um, you know, for as far as brain tumors are concerned, this is the best kind to have. Um, it's, you know, very, um, you know, for for these kinds of people that do these procedures, it's it's not, I mean, it's not ultra common, but it's it's not uncommon. Um, and uh, they, they, it's, it's relatively simple for them. And, um, you know, you'll be, you'll be back in commission, you know, in, in a few months and, you um, you know, it's, you're going to lose your hearing, you know, that's the, that's the bad part. And, you know, you're, you're going to have to have your hearing nerve removed. And he kind of explained that process to me and what went into it and where they made the incision and how it worked. And so I was pretty well aware of everything before I went into the actual what, surgery. What was, what was the process? So um, the process is uh, basically um, after the, anest the anesthesia, um, they, they put like one of these halo devices on you, um, you know, in case you, so your, your body cannot move or your head can't move while they're doing it. And, um, they have a, uh, a person called a neuroautologist, which is a neuroautologist is somebody that is, um, their job is to just drill into your skull. Um, they're, they're, they're trained to just literally cut into cranium. And Ugh. then the neurologist is the person that actually goes in and starts messing with the brain. Um, and so there's a team, you know, there's the anesthesiologist, the neuroautologist, and then there's the neurologist. And so where they came in on my end was pretty much um, if you touch the back of your cranium behind your right ear, there's a little, there's like a little bone. You can feel like where the back of your skull is behind your ear. And that's, that's where they drill the hole. And that gives them a clear line of sight to your brainstem and your hearing nerve. And so they do it with a combination of like, microscopes um and and um like a little a little like it's basically like a scraping device where they have to go through and literally scrape the the tumor off of your brainstem and unfortunately um you know for in my situation the tumor had grown into my hearing nerve so preserving that preserving the hearing nerve already with this type of procedures like a, a less than one percent chance and so like it was like for me it's already in there growing into it so there was like no chance of you know saving it so they just had to literally cut the cut the line so there's literally no line connecting my ear to my brain on the right side um, got it so now quick question about that procedure um i've heard that for brain surgery people are awake or often awake um i don't know if this is you know i don't know if that's true or not that's just what i've heard were you awake for this absolutely not <laughs> no i was i <laughs> was right. i was as Good. knocked out as knocked out can be i i woke up um 
you know, with bandages all over my my skull. They actually had put in uh, had placed a uh, a large like plastic um, dome like ring over the over the ear and the skull in that in that area. And then I had my whole head wrapped in bandages like some kind of mummy or something. And um, that was how I woke up. And it stayed like that. And it stayed like that for about a week and a half to two weeks. Um, and I spent a solid week um, in the um, um, ICU, or it's like a neuro- neurological ICU, where they have people that kind of um, help, you know, after a few days, they help you get up and like walk walk you with like walkers because your equilibrium's all jacked up, like your world's spinning, like you actually have to learn how to maneuver again without without that portion of your your equilibrium and um, so sounds like a fairly traumatic procedure um what was it like leading up to it it was all super fast um you know i i was still selling cars and when i came back and i told them the news um you know they were all you know all my coworkers and colleagues were extremely sympathetic um you know, I, they actually started taking care of me. Um, you know, was that like the next day basically? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and the surgery date I had was like 10 days after. So it was, it was, or, or two weeks after it was a real, real quick. And in that two weeks, you know, I, I was getting all my, my, my stuff situated to like not be at work. Cause they told me I was probably going to be out for about, um, six months. This was what they told me. Um, because par- partially was the whole walking thing, the recovering thing, but then also, um, uh, my face, you know, I, I, they told me I was going to have pretty much like a, if not a permanent, like Bell's palsy type situation that, that it would, it would be lingering for a while. And, um, you know, that, I don't know if are you familiar with Bell's palsy kind of, no, um, that's, that's like, if you ever see somebody that has like a stroke and half their face doesn't work. Yes. Okay. Um, I am familiar. I, it was that it's, it's with the brains with the brain situation. It's not called Bell's palsy because it's not like activated by stroke, but it looks the same. Um, it's like you're, you're so basically you have a frozen half of this face yeah, basically. Dro- drooping. Yeah. So eyes, drooping, eyes, okay. eyes watering and yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. Um, so I had that, I had that for a good while and I didn't go away for about six months, like they said. And, and I still, I, I only have, if you look at pictures of me or videos, like when I talk, I look like I look normal, but I, it, it isn't a hundred percent. Like I can't smile all the way on that side. It, it, you know, most people can't tell, um, unless I like make real exaggerated faces, but it's still not a hundred percent. And it's been, you know, over 10 years, but, um, that was, that was the situation. But yeah, the guys at work were really great to me. They took care of me and, um, you know, started kind of hooking me up, so to speak, you know, so I had some cash in the bank to kind of, you know, get me through that six months of not working and did like, Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, it was really neat. Um, you know how the way that they did that, you know, sometimes there's, you know, deals come in that really don't go to anyone. They're just kind of like, they considered like house deals, if you will. And they were kind of putting them in my name to help me out and things like that. Um, you know, just to put some extra cash in my pocket. So that was really kind of them. Um, and, um, I always appreciated that. And, um, I ended up getting back to work, um, in about half the time. Um, they told me I was back to work by, um, uh, mid December, um, instead of like the projected, like February ish kind of time, time frame. I was just so bored at home that I wanted to get back into it. And yeah, shortly thereafter, I got a call, um, you know, from a, from a friend and he, he, I don't know if he was unaware of everything that had happened or if he just didn't think anything of it, but he said, Hey, are you still recording? And I said, 
No, man. I mean, I just had this brain surgery and I'm deaf in my right ear. So I, you know, I'm probably not going to be of much use for that. And he said, well, okay. And then I, you know, I, I thought for a second, I kind of felt like, you know, like, like, wait, what? Like, why am I, why not? You know, like, why not give it a shot and just see, like, I, I, I mean, I can hear, (laughs) obviously, like I'm still out here talking to people and working like, and I told him, you know, I mean, I'm going to give it a shot. And so I did. And that was kind of the start of me, like, understanding that I am not useless, you know, in, in as far as recording is concerned. And I can still I can still do this, you know. So how long from the point that you woke up with no hearing on one side, how long was the elapsed time between that and when you got that phone call? I want to say, if I had to estimate... Six months. So for six months, uh, you thought that your audio career was over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had my monitors set up, but they had started collecting dust. And, um, you know, I was using my computer strictly for AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> and uh, you know, How did you feel about that? Like, I mean, you still had the monitors up there, mm-hmm. so you could look at them every day like a reminder, which probably kind of sucked. Yeah, it did. You know, I... I um, I, I think at that point, you know, I had just kind of, ex- I, I had begun accepting that before I had the surgery. And so or I say accepting that like in quotes because it ended up being that I didn't accept it. But I had started to to, to tell myself like this. Tolerating it. Yeah. Like, like, okay, I just need to accept like that, you know, and I'm going to be selling cars, you know, for the rest of my life. And, you know, I, I'm going to be fine, you know, but I, I, I honestly was so preoccupied with everything that I kind of just didn't think about it. I maybe, maybe it was like a mental, uh, like I was protecting myself from, you know, feeling feelings about it <laughs> by just like suppressing it. But I just, I, I, I didn't, um, dwell on it. And I think that's a common thing for me though. If I'm, if I'm hurt by something or if I'm, you know, feeling down about something, I, I tend to kind of, um, uh, not, not give it a lot of attention. I just think about, I've tried to be positive a lot. And, um, you know, I, I just hadn't, I, I wasn't sulking or anything like that or, or, um, you know, I wasn't letting it kill me, um, or, or anything, but, um, but I did, I will tell you that I did have a sense of, 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 of satisfaction and a sense of, um, pride when I did the recording and well, I, I'm, I'm sh- you mean before or after? after, well, I'm sure, but, uh, but still in that time period before you started Recording. I want to hear more about what you mean by keeping positive, because I imagine most people would not be able to keep positive in that. I mean, most people that I know, um, and I don't mean the achievers, let's say everybody else, um, they tend to have hardships that are way less than that. Uh, keep them down because they dwell on things and they respond to adversity in the wrong way. Like um, with something as major as losing your hearing for an audio engineer that, you know, that's kind of like losing an arm for a guitar player or something like that. Um, And we know from history that musicians have been able to lose a limb and then keep playing their instruments. But uh, that takes an enormous amount of uh, positivity, I think, and uh, uh, self-belief in oneself. Like, can you talk more about the positivity aspect? Um, Yeah, as as far as... um you know, remaining positive and, and all of that. Um, yeah. As far as like your analogy with the, 
you know, a guitar player, you know, like losing a limb or something like that. I, I never, I never really looked at it that way. Um, I, I always, I know it, I know it sounds kind of weird that I didn't feel like a, an overwhelming defeat by it, um, initially, but it was, it was a situation where I said, I, I can still hear, you know, it's, it with a face, my face was something I was a little more concerned about is because the people physically, I, I, I did, I was paranoid that people would look at me and think, you know, like, think of me as like, I that was being physically disabled. And, um, you know, I, I, I was able to remain pretty positive throughout the whole experience and, and I never let it really get me down. And after I did, you know, my first recording post, post-surgery, I, um, I really felt like I was able to do this. You know, I never let, I never, you know, the only time it really bothered me was when I put headphones on and I knew there was 50% of the information that I'm not getting. Um, you know, and so I, I would switch to mono and I would be able to understand like for reference, everything that was going on, but I just had to always kind of under, understand that I wasn't getting, um, you know, a true representation of what everyone else is going to be getting, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you told your friend that you were deaf in one side, um, don't you think that most people looking for an engineer would be like, oh man, sorry to hear that. I guess, uh, I guess we're going to have to find a different engineer. You know, I, that's, that's kind of been like a, that's kind of been like a lingering theme for me, um, you know, over the last 10 years. And, and, and that's one reason why I, I you know, I, I felt it was kind of time to speak up about it is because I, I don't tell anyone this information, you know, it's, it's not, it's not important, you know, because what's important is how the recordings sound. And if they did not like the way my recordings sound, that's a different story. But if they like it, then it shouldn't matter to them how I'm getting it there, whether it's with one ear or two. But my buddy, thankfully, was only looking for a lo-fi kind of thing, a demo. And at the time, you know, with a $100 Personas interface um, <laughs> and, you know, these these $100 set of like Audix Tom, live Tom mics I had or whatever, like all I could make was the lo-fi sound you know, anyway. So, um, I, you know, he, he wasn't super concerned and, you know, I, I think I was charging him 10 bucks an hour or something like that. So, you know, and it was a good friend of mine. So I don't think it really bothered him. I think he kind of was excited by it to see me doing it again. But when I, when I went like into the professional realm where I'm, you know, doing this for, for full time, um, I just don't let it, I, it just, it doesn't come up. You know, people just come in and they're excited to see me and, and they're excited to work with me. Um, and they have no idea. And they have no idea, you know. And and so I've had clients, some clients for six or seven years and it just never came up. And when I when I tell them, they're like, wow, like, how do you, how are you able to do this? And I'm like, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the same way anyone else is. I don't, I doesn't, I, I, I got all my chops after the fact, you know, so it's, I don't know, and I don't know another way. So between when you uh, did that first recording and then you went pro, you made it sound like it was the next day, but I'm sure it wasn't the next day. Like how much time elapsed, and what did you have to do to work up that confidence, or how long did it take until you would have considered yourself a pro? Well, I mean, there are times even today where I'm like, yeah, I'm getting paid to do this, but. 
<laughs> you know, am I am I really a professional? Um, well, I'm yeah. sure everybody I know <laughs> feels that way at some time. Yeah, but um, so that was about um, February of February or March of 2008. I would say I did that first recording um, post surgery, and I left my position at the dealership in November of 08. The recession happened, started, we started feeling the effects of it around May uh, or that summer, uh, May, June. And I, you know, I'd given it several months and I, I'd pretty much the, you know, the writing was on the wall. This isn't going to change. And, um, you know, I, I had a great mentor that I met while working at the dealership. Um, and, you know, he kind of started planting these entrepreneurial seeds and giving me books to read. And, and that's when I really said, you know, I think I'm going to just do this. And so, um, there was about, I would say six months, uh, elapsed, but, when I when I decided to do this again, I, I'll reiterate from earlier. It was extremely reckless because, you know, there are guys that are in their first month of URM that are putting up mixes that would obliterate anything I was trying to do in that time frame. I mean, it was horrifyingly bad when I go back and listen to it. And I would say it took me from from the moment that I went, you know, decided to do this professionally. I I creatively and, and, you know, skill-wise crashed and burned for about four or five months where I was just staying up till, you know, endless hours of the night, you know, reading articles, practicing, you know, um, pulling up old things I had recorded and trying to sculpt them in different ways and playing around with compressors and EQs and, and literally just trying to find like, okay, where, what is the standard for this stuff? Because like, I didn't know, you know, the same questions I see people asking now is like the same stuff I was asking, except there wasn't a forum to ask it. You know, does the EQ come before or after the compressor? Does it, is there a right or a wrong way to do this? Is there a right or wrong way to do that? Or, you know, oh, more than 4 dB of EQ is wrong or it's not wrong or, you know, it's just so much information. It's like, you know, and my source material was awful. And so she's like, it really took me about six months to really get to a point to where I've I felt like okay, this isn't the worst thing in the world now, and from- and and it didn't bother you that you couldn't hear in one ear. You were just gonna do it. That's right. Awesome. I mean, did you have to think about that at all? Like, or was it just like no question? I'm just gonna do it. Yeah, there fuck was- it. Uh, fuck it. I know it seems <laughs> crazy, but fuck it. You know, it, I, I did say fuck it, yeah, but it, it just never seemed crazy. You know, it didn't. Um, or, or how about this? Let me rephrase. It might seem crazy to other people. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah. And that's that That was probably more more or less the case. And I that's when I kind of consciously decided seems, I wasn't going to bring mean, it up. It, it seems a little crazy to me, to not that you did it, but more that you had the balls to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause, I don't think most people would have. I think most people would have just accepted defeat. Well, I, I, I mean, pre- I appreciate that. Yeah, I, and I, I think that goes back to the, my mentorship. You know, my, my, you know, the books I was reading at the time, and and you know, my mentality. Like I mentioned, it's kind of like, you know, burn the ships. You know, this isn't there isn't an option for me outside of this. You know, I just I've always kept that mentality. Like this is it. You know, this is this is what I'm going to do. And so the the ear thing, the ear thing to me just never, you know, it never it just never was an, a thing for me. I never made it. I never allowed it to be a thing. Um, so let's talk about the technical compensation. So you said that you you some things to mono. Like, how do you I mean, how do you get your balances right between left and right? Like, how do you know? Like, how do, what do you use as a gauge? Like. How did you figure this out? 
so what I've done at, at all, pretty much any time I possibly can, I will record my guitars through the same, like my rhythm guitars through the same exact chain. Um, you know, I, I tend nowadays, I try to use the same player, you know, I, that's just a given though. You always want the better guy to try to do the rhythms if you can, if you can get them to, um, but I will always try to cut the guitars. Like, so if I'm using a 5150, right. And I have it, you know, running through like an API pre, you know, with a 57 yeah, I'm, I'm going to not mess with the, the gain state, the gain, uh, input gain or the output gain of the API, uh, unit, um, or like the volume of the head while I'm, while I'm doing left to right rhythms. You know, I, I want to make sure that I'm keeping them the same in a situation where I have a, you know, where maybe we want to use like an Uber shawl on the right side or something like that, or maybe something the band brings, then I'll make sure that I'm looking at the meters per se to make sure that the left side, like to an eyeball sense looks very close to the right side. And then what I'll do is sometimes I will look at them like the, uh, where they're peaking and then I'll mono them. <laughs> and I'll make sure that they're, you know, they're feeling the same. And I've never had anyone come back to me and say the right side of your mix is louder than the left. Um, it's never happened to me. So I've always, that tells me that I've done a decent job of, you know, crossing my T's and dotting my I's to make sure that, things are very balanced in that sense. And when it comes to like panning, like sometimes I'll, you know, want to pan, you know, delays or I'll pan uh, reverbs or something, or I'll pan a vocal to where, it, you know, the delay shoots from left to right or just things like that. Then, then it's not even really about what I'm hearing. It's about me kind of drawing it, understanding that the listener is going to interpret it the way that I'm drawing it. And, Mm -hmm. You know, even though I don't necessarily perceive it that way, if that makes sense. So you kind of have developed an understanding for what you think they're perceiving. And obviously it's pretty accurate if you've never had someone say uh, one side seems louder than the other or the mix feels lopsided or anything like that. And I've heard, man, I've gotten... You know, we get like 500 plus mixes a month here at Nail the Mix. Um, I've heard guys with two functioning ears who present lopsided mixes every month. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think <laughs> saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's worked to my advantage. You know, it's funny because I have two I have two other guys that work here out of the studio um, with me that um, help me out with with different things, and um, it's funny because. Um, I use a uh, Black Lion um, modded uh, 003. Uh, I got like their top end mod, and that's what I use as my like my interface in my home st in my home studio um, that I mix on. And um, the output, uh, the the monitor output started to fail, and I'm the guy that actually noticed that the right side was more quiet than the left side. It's like, I, I, and, and I'm like, how I even, I, I made it, I made a joke to the guys about it. I was like, how do you guys with the two ears not realize that the right side's like significantly more quiet than the left side, <laughs> you know, and I don't even hear in that side. But I think what happened was, is through, through my natural checks, like the way that I check things, um, especially when I'm panning like hi-hats and rides, you know, which I, I tend to mix uh, these days like drummer perspective, and I have the hi hat on my left and my left monitor. So when I'm when I'm doing my ride, it's like I'm looking for that ping to be in a certain spot, and it wasn't. 
And I was like, why is the ride, you know, 12 dB louder than the hi-hat in order for me to get the right vibe that I'm looking for? And then that's when I started looking into it and realizing, well, the right side is significantly more quiet than the left side. And I ended up isolating it to be an output problem of on the interface and had to send it back. But I, yeah, it's funny that you said that because it, it seems almost like what what would be considered like a, 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 a curse as it kind of become like a uh, a useful tool, you know. And I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at finding like those whistly frequencies and uh, pretty quick. Uh, more so that has to do with y'all's y'all's classes than anything. I mean, the ear training aspect of it, but but I can pick them out real 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 quick and you know know which ones are going to work in the mix and which ones I need to dip out. Um, so it, I don't know. I, I've made it work. It sounds kind of like um, how when you're mixing without a sub and you're just supposed to understand uh, what the bass roll-off is on your monitor so you know. For instance, everything from 60 and below on these monitors is going to sound like 6 dB quieter than it really is or, you know, whatever. And you, you start to learn your speakers and you learn how to compensate for them. And so... Uh, you know that what you're hearing right there isn't the way it translates out into the world in the low end. Sounds like a similar thing. Like, you know where, for your hearing, where you should be hearing the ride, for instance. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, mo- like I like I mentioned before, most of my, like all my, my chops, like when I got, when I was kind of like learning the ropes with all this stuff in the beginning, has all come after the fact. So all of my ear training that I've developed over the over the last, you know, decade is all pertinent to one ear, you know. I and all my all the music I listen to now is all I'm all hearing it I'm hearing it the same way you are or anyone is. It's just only through one side. So I inter- I'm I'm still interpreting the same picture. So when it comes time for me to paint my own picture i'm painting the same picture just doing it with what i have if that makes any sense yeah except for with headphones that fucks you up yeah i can't do that (laughs) yeah Yeah. okay yeah i can't do that yeah so i mean i i do just just like i I heard i hear people all the time like i check low end on headphones so i in the last year i've started trying that just just to try and see if i can feel the bass and and i'll and then I'll, I'll reference with the headphones just to say like okay well the other thing you know colin richardson stuff feels like this with headphones on and um, i need to make mine feel like that with headphones on even if i'm only hearing the left side i have a mono button that i'll use from time to time with the headphones but it's it's that's a really rare thing and it's only for a few seconds because it's just it messes with my my head Got it. So what are some of your goals for the future? Um, well, right now, um, I have a few goals. Um, my, my main one is to, um, you know, continue to get better. Um, you know, I, I really am super driven. I really want to be... Yeah, get better at audio. Get better at audio, yes. Uh, okay. get, get better as a mixer. Get better as a, as a guy that's recording and getting better source tones, you know, um, that's, that's, that's always the goal. Um, the second is, you know, financial related. I want to continue to raise my rates and continue to get the ra- the rates I'm asking for and, um, you know, increase our bottom line and improve our gear and, you know, keep reinvesting in the studio. Um, and 
Um, I would say that that's it. I mean, outside of that, I'm, you know, I'm hoping to build another house in the near future and things like that. And, you know, I have a wife and a son and just continue to provide for them. So just onwards and upwards. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Well, Clifton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really hope that people who feel down on themselves take a lot from this and realize that it's really what you make of it. Most times, 99 out of a hundred times, um, you know, it's all in how you choose to respond to the hardship that makes the difference. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I, I just got to say, I, I absolutely, uh, adore, you know, what y'all are, what y'all are doing. It's, it's, Thank you. it's, it's game changing, you know, in, in, in so many ways. I mean, I remember the first time I saw the ad, you know, it was uh, for periphery, you know, um, you know, I, I've, I had never for, don't judge me. I never listened to periphery, but I knew that they were very popular and, you know, I, I, I knew that, you know, they were playing kind of, I a, hadn't heard that. I hadn't heard them either. So it's okay. <laughs> uh, are you joking? Or are you being serious? No, too? I'm hundred percent serious. I yeah. knew, I mean, and it, I knew, Misha through the internet like we had emailed and like I knew who they were obviously how can you not know but yeah I think I heard something in 2006 maybe when uh Doss tried to audition their old vocalist Casey and he turned us down um but like that's about it yeah so I I knew that it was it was it was really popular you know with the, a lot of the guys that came in I'd see the shirts and things like that so I um I I said I get to get the tracks from the session and I get to watch the guy who mixed it, mix it. And then my question was, well, how good does that mix sound? <laughs> so I, I heard the song and I was like, okay, this is going to be cool. And I didn't know if it was a one-time thing or not. And I looked into it and it's like every month this happens. And so I was like, oh, this is, this is crazy. So yeah, I joined and I, I've, I've been, I've not never unsubscribed. I, and I don't plan to ever, you know, it's, it's, it's too, it's too good. I mean, I don't get to compete every month. Um, but I do watch every month's, um, mix live mix. And if I can't catch it live, I'll watch the replay, you know, in my own time. But, um, you know, to anyone that's even remotely considering joining Nelda mix or the URM family, it's, it's almost foolish to not. Um, and I, and I say that as I'm a, a raving fan, you know, I love, I just love what y'all do so much and, and the way that I it's set up and, and it's great. And, you know, other guys are doing a good job too, but y'all's feels to me, you know, y'all are the Nike of recording education. <laughs> so, Thank you. I really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. We were just trying to give people what we didn't have when we were learning, you know? Amen would have killed for that back in like 2004 or five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, siphoning through gear sluts is not, was never uh, my, my uh, most favorite thing to do, uh, nor was uh, being patronized on the uh, uh, freaking Andy Sneap forum. So uh, (laughs) yeah, it's amazing that I can get, you know, education without the, the, the dicks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Dick free. Yes. (laughs) Forever dick free. Well, Clifton, thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2007 17 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at URMSummit.com.
To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.